0: Well, as you're uh, sitting down, open your Bibles, please, to 2 Timothy chapter 2. When we moved here nine years ago, we expected a very light amount of traffic. There's nothing worse than getting stuck in, in a rush hour. Isn't that an oxymoron? Rush hour? In a bumper-to-bumper crawl at about 3 in the afternoon when you're trying to go somewhere. My 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 mom called me. I think it was this week, and she said, "Boy, if you if you haven't gone to if you haven't if you're in Bellingham, don't come home." She says it just took me an hour and a half to get home from Bellingham. There was a, there was an accident out here on the freeway, and it just jammed up all the roads. I guess my mom doesn't know the back way maybe uh, just yet. But we used to live in Seattle, and they used to get stuck in the traffic jam every so often. You know, there's places down there where I-5 is 10 lanes wide. Yeah, Norm, I can get a witness from you on that, huh? (laughs) And uh, you get in a traffic jam and you inch along and, and maybe an hour later you get to where you were going and you just have the overwhelming feeling that you've burned an hour, that you'll never have back for no good reason. You can get in a traffic jam in other places than in your car. The Christian life and the church can be places that get jammed up with traffic, which only results in burning your time, not really producing anything important. And I believe as we come to 2 Timothy today, we're going to learn, as we are about being strong through this book, that being strong in the Lord means that we learn to focus on things that matter. And as a result we don't waste our time in traffic jams 2 Timothy chapter 2 starting verse 23 avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife and a servant of the lord must not quarrel but be gentle to all able to teach patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Throughout the book of Second Timothy, we're trying to learn about how we can be strong as people and as believers in Christ. And Paul tells Timothy here as he as he concludes this section that has to do with with false doctrine and the people who carry it around he says Timothy you have to know the difference between things that matter and things that don't matter and he says strong believers avoid discussions that don't matter This is the third time in this passage between verse 14 and the end of the chapter that Paul has exhorted Timothy to be discerning in regard to doctrinal issues. In verse 14, he says, Look, Timothy, as you remind them about God's truth, tell them not to strive about words or to argue about words in an argument in which there is no profit. In verse 16, he says, There are some things that people pass around as doctrine that are profane. That is, they dishonor God, and he calls them idle babblings. Can you imagine if somebody got up and talked, and somebody else got up and said, that's an idle babbling? We'd think, oh, that's terribly harsh. And yet God says there are such things that are passed around under the guise of his truth that are actually an idle babbling or profane. That is, it doesn't honor God. Here in verse 23... God says some arguments are foolish and they come from ignorant people. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. If by God's inspiration Paul has spent so much time warning Timothy to be discerning about doctrinal issues, we need to pay careful attention because God speaks when it's important. How does God describe these discussions. How does he describe discussions that don't matter? The first word that he uses the word foolish in most of our translations, and it's the word from which we get our word moron. You know what the, (laughs) it's, and and it sounds very much like that in Greek. The, it's spelled very much like that as well. Do You know what the dictionary definition of a moron is? Look this up in your Webster's Dictionary. A mentally deficient person, but less so than an idiot or an imbecile. <laughs> See, that? not that worth memorizing? <laughs> now, the reason I say that, you know, I oddly enough, I read the dictionary once in a while when I'm looking for just the right word for something. I learned that from one of my professors at school who used to read the dictionary just so he'd know all the words that were in it. And uh, when I shared that humorously with some friends in Tukwila, one of the men worked in the social service industry, if you will, in the state of Washington, and he said, those used to be technical definitions of levels of retardation. A moron was a mentally deficient person, but, l- but less so than an idiot or an imbecile. Now, now, we've come to use those words as insults. But back in the day, they'd say, well, there is, there's normal, then there's moron, then there's idiot, then there's imbecile. And the significant thing about our word here in the Greek text is this. It actually means your brain doesn't work right. That's the meaning of the word. The root word here means to be dull or to be sluggish of mind. In a literal sense, it means a person with low brain power. We had a facility about a block away from our house, from our backyard. We could kind of see it across the block over there. That was a care facility for seniors, what we used to call a rest home. But about half of the residents were people who had mental diagnoses. Some of them would be called mentally ill. Others would have been called, uh, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? I, I don't want to say retarded because that's not a popular word anymore. But uh, mentally deficient had various disorders. One of them was a guy named George. George was about six foot four, six foot five. He used to come to our church uh, off and on, especially when we had potlucks. George would pile his plate. I'm not joking or exaggerating here. He'd pile his plate that tall, and he was skinny. He was tall and skinny because he walked all over Seattle. We had people that said they saw him in downtown Seattle, and Tuckwell is like 15 miles away, you know. George didn't talk much, and uh, you know he wasn't he wasn't mean or rude or anything, but he just didn't talk much. And one day he was carrying a bunch of papers and a pencil, and I said, George, what are you doing? He says, I'm writing some letters. Okay? Well, who are you writing to, George? I expected he'd say his mom or his dad or something. He said, I'm writing to a horse. Okay? George's mind didn't work right. Okay? I'm not making fun of him. I'm just saying his mind didn't work right. His mind worked on some level, but his mind didn't work right. And that's actually the word that God is using here. He's saying there are some arguments we have about supposedly scriptural issues, but they come from people who are not thinking right. God says the content of some so-called doctrinal arguments are like the thoughts of that person whose mind doesn't work right. How does God define a mind who doesn't work right? well here's a clue the fool has said in his heart there is no God they are corrupt they have done abominable works there's none who does good so here's the word fool it's a different word it's an Old Testament word but God says a fool says there is no God in Proverbs 1 7 it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge but fools despise wisdom and instruction so if you're having an argument that is supposedly doctrinal, but you are purposefully ignoring God's truth, then you are having a moronic discussion. I mean, we need, we need to understand what this is because the Apostle Paul says there are some arguments that are moronic and you should avoid them. And so if somebody is trying to talk to you about something spiritual, but they're essentially saying, don't confuse the issue with the Bible, then it's a moronic discussion. And you should walk away, not engage. He says, avoid. Walk away from those kinds of things. The other word that he uses here, and he he uses these two things together, is the word ignorant, ignorant. Um, in your New King James, it's, or in the New King James, it's ignorant. In the NIV, it uses the word "stupid." The King James uses the word "unlearned." The actual word means "untrained," and the, it's the root word for training up a child with a with a negative prefix on it, so "untrained." And we get the word. The word is used in a positive way in uh, in texts like Ephesians six four. Bring up your children in the training and admonition of the Lord. And it has, the the idea is that a child doesn't know everything they need to know and you need to work with them over time to get them to think right. And he says there are some people whose minds are untrained. That is, they haven't learned to think in a biblical way. They react to ideas But they don't have a cohesive broad thought pattern. They have opinions on anything and everything, and they are, by God's definition, what God calls a fool. A fool does not delight in understanding, but he only delights in revealing his own mind. He doesn't truly say, Let's find the truth, but instead of that, he reacts. He reacts to words that are hot buttons. And I'm going to share some of those hot buttons with you and some of the reactions that people have. When we say the word hell, one of the reactions people have is how would a good God send people to hell? Now, that question sounds like an important discussion, but it's an ill informed discussion because it's not based on the scripture. What about the word sin? How popular is it today? Go to work tomorrow and find one of your coworkers and say, Have I told you yet that you're a sinner? <laughs> I have a friend who has a coworker who's had some spiritual discussions with somebody, and their coworker rejects, solidly rejects the idea of being a sinner. No, I'm not a sinner. A sinner to them would be somebody like Ted Bundy, you know, or some some other mass murderer. Um, I'm not a sinner. But that discussion is not based in the Word of God. What about the word predestination? People hear that and they say, how can it be fair for God to choose where people go? And of course, that's an ill-informed discussion because that's not even what the word predestination is about in the Scripture. Or how about this? Corporal punishment. Um, How can hitting children teach them to act right? If you've never heard anybody say that, you haven't talked to enough people about corporal punishment. You haven't preached it. How about this word? Submission. Everybody's created equal. What are you talking about? How about this word, homosexuality? Why would God create someone in a way in which he would condemn their natural behavior? An ignorant dispute is one in which the Bible is absent because people haven't learned to think biblically. An ignorant dispute is conducted in human logic, not biblical doctrine. See, it may make sense, it may be rational, it may be logical, but it's not biblical. This brings us to the action point. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that what they generate is strife, or they they generate a, a spirit of argumentation. And in fact, part of the action point is right here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Test all things. I don't really... I favor the word critical as a Christian virtue, but I do like the word analytical. When you analyze something, you try to find out what's inside. In our minds, usually criticism means I have something I don't like and I'm going to tell you about it. Or really, the word critical just means to review something from from an intelligent point of view. But the word analytical is one that ought to be in our vocabulary. Test all things. When people come to you with a spiritual discussion, do you react or do you stop and say, now let me think for a minute, is this really a biblical discussion? Does this person want to have a biblical discussion? Do they want to open the word and find out what the word says or are they just promoting their own idea? He says, test everything and hang on to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Paul puts it this way to Timothy, avoid the foolish and ignorant disputes. Don't invest yourself in them. God instructs those of us who would, who would be mature to be discerning. And it comes right back to 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing or cutting a straight line like a craftsman with the word of truth. The only way you can avoid discussions that are moronic and the product of an untrained mind is to be a craftsman with The word and to have your arguments based in the word of God. God doesn't condemn discussion. God doesn't doesn't condemn debate, but he condemns it when it is not based in God's truth. But the story doesn't quite end there. It would be easy to say, well, I'm just going to walk away when people start talking foolishly. God doesn't say to walk away from people. He says to avoid the foolish discussion. Because what he says to do with people is this. We need to accept the responsibility of caring for weak believers. And in the, in the context in which we're talking, we're talking about believers whose thinking has not grown enough and their doctrinal understanding is weak. And as a result, they are weak. And so, if we're going to care for weak believers, we have to personally have the right identity. And the identity that Paul puts here for Timothy is servant of the Lord. Look at verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle, able to teach, and patient. I have no doubt that when Paul wrote this to Timothy, there was a primary application to those who would be spiritual leaders in their church. Those who we often call elders or pastors. And so as such, this term servant is sort of a synonym for that or a a synonym for the title of that person's office. But as we look throughout the New Testament, God enjoins all of us to act in the same way toward those who are weak in the faith. In particular here in Romans chapter 15. We then who are strong... Ought to bear with the, literally with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please ourselves. The question you have to ask yourself in regard to another Christian who appears to be weak is this Am I the stronger brother? Am I the stronger sister? Because if I am, if, and, and let me just put it this way if I want to see myself that way, then I have a responsibility to care for the weaker brother. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification or building up, for even Christ did not please himself. And I think that's why he uses the term servant of the Lord in verse 24. The question we've got to ask regarding other believers and our relationship to them is, who am I serving when I interact with them? Do I come to church primarily or singularly to receive? Because if I do, then when I see somebody who is moronic and untrained in their thinking, I just go, and I walk away. But if I am a servant of the Lord, I look at the situation and say, When God looks at me from heaven, how smart does he think I am? How weak does he think I am? We who are strong ought to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Do you remember Jesus with the disciples? And do you remember those times that are recorded for us in the Gospels when he went, oh, you guys will never get it? He actually did say that. I don't know if he shouted. But he said, What's wrong with you? One of the times when they're going across the lake and not understanding everything, he says, Oh, you of little faith. And did he then cut them off and throw them away? No. He, he thought, Okay, guys, let's start again from the beginning. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> and lo and behold, sooner or later, those guys became strong. We then who are strong have to bear with the infirmities of the weak, the weaknesses of the weak, not to please ourselves. Those of you that are parents, when you taught your child to tie his shoes one time, is that all it took? Here, Johnny, here's how you do it. Johnny goes, okay. That's it, Johnny. You've had your chance. No, because we understand how weak he is. And that's what God wants us to do toward other believers. When the other believers come promoting moronic ideas by God's definition... We who are strong have to say, God, help me draw this brother or sister into true biblical thinking. How can I possibly do it? And we don't do it to please ourselves, just like Christ didn't go to the cross because he thought it would be a fun afternoon. It's tough to help people grow up in the Lord. but God has called us to that. Caring for weak believers requires the right identity. What is your identity? Is it as a servant of the Lord or a servant of yourself? Number two, caring for weak believers requires the right methodology. And I have summarized what Paul wrote here into one statement. Gentle, patient, teaching, not quarreling. Let's read it together, or let's read it here, uh, verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition. What does gentle, patient teaching look like? Here's an example from Acts chapter 17. Now when they, that's Paul and his traveling companions, when they had had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And then Paul, as was his custom, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now, if you if you know your Old Testament, you realize that what Paul did was he went into the Jewish place of worship where they were reading the Old Testament and worshiping God from an Old Testament perspective. And he talked about the Christ. In the Old Testament, there is the Savior who is predicted and he's called, in Greek, the word is Christ. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah. And so he went in and said, you You folks are all familiar with the Messiah who's supposed to come, oh yeah, yeah, we know about that. What was it they didn't know? They didn't know that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and so he goes into the synagogue and he says, "You folks believe in God, you believe in the coming Messiah. Let me open this Old Testament that you 're holding and show you how it's how it predicts that the Christ or the Messiah will suffer." probably went to Isaiah 53, among other places, and how he must rise from the dead. So he reasoned, he explained, he, he brought scripture together with scripture, and then he went one step farther and he said, now this Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the guy that you're aware of, this fella is the Christ. He taught them, he, he, he spent three weeks, he didn't go in and take five minutes and give them the four spiritual laws. Okay? He 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 spent 3 sabbaths and no doubt all the time in between because they went, "What are you talking about?" He didn't go in and make one presentation, boom, and if you don't get it you're a hard case and you're on your own, I'm going on to the next guy. No, he reasoned with them and he taught them gentle, patient teaching, not quarreling. And here is the testimony that the Apostle Paul gives of this time frame in Thessalonica here in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. He says, we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. That's how Paul, that's what his, his character and his deportment was like while he was reasoning about the scriptures. I've been around a few mothers of young children And boy, they are gentle, even grandmothers of young children. Because they realize how frail they are, and they realize it's our job as adults to help them grow up. What does patient teaching look like as compared with quarreling? Patient teaching involves an exchange of information. Just a minute ago we looked at things that are moronic and untrained and they are absent of God's truth. So if you are going to teach a young believer, there's got to be content from God's word. The scriptures have to be open. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. Here's how you can live it out in your life. Quarreling involves talking loud to dominate the conversation. It doesn't, doesn't rely on content. It relies on volume. Patient teaching has no time limit. The Apostle Paul only left Thessalonica because he was being persecuted and they would have killed him if he didn't leave town. There were places like Ephesus where he stayed for two, three years. Patient teaching has no time limit, quarreling draws lines in the sand. Patient teaching leaves the door open for more interaction. Hey, let's talk about it again. I know you don't agree. I know you don't understand. I know I've created some questions in your mind. Patient teaching leaves room, the door open for more interaction. Quarreling requires an immediate change of mind right now. Patient teaching builds people. Quarreling tears relationships apart. Patient teaching opens minds to new ideas. One of the hardest things to do when you're trying to teach God's truth to people is to frame it in a way that allows them to pick it up and look at it and then look at their thoughts and say, wow, I never saw it that way before. And when you do that, people have the opportunity to grow in their thinking. quarreling just sets minds to defend themselves at all costs. This needs to be a key guiding principle when we're trying to help people grow up. Let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. And the next verse is the really important one. Why? Why should we not quarrel? Why should we not raise our voice? Because the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Only God can change people's hearts. And so there's got to be an ongoing commitment to teaching and growing people up. Do you remember this fella? Lou Pinella. I don't know why his nickname was Sweet Lou. <laughs> that's his nickname, Sweet Lou Pinella. If you don't know, uh, if you've been under a rock for several years, he used to manage the, the Mariners, and now he manages somewhere else that we don't care about. Um, but when he thought the umpire got it wrong, that's how he did and he went it was in stages the first stage was 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 not face to face but belly to belly and then the second stage was the hat off and the third stage was kicking the dirt and the fourth stage was him getting ejected out of the game how many times did he change the umpire's mind The Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. You want to change somebody's mind? Speak the truth and let God bring it home. There's no value to shouting with God's truth. One author put it this way, wrangling never produces repentance, or conversion. There does not need to be a spirit of fighting, but a spirit of gentleness, because the power to change minds and lives comes from the Holy Spirit. So those who would be strong, mature believers are to be discerning about issues as they work to bring weak believers into a mature understanding, because... They are activated by the significance of the spiritual life. Look at verse 25 and 26. If this doesn't scare you into action, then nothing will. Verse 25, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and so that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil... Having been taken captive by him to do his will. We lived in several places, several homes, apartments during our years at Nooksack. You know, we started by living in the church and then we graduated up to an apartment which was about as close to the fire station as that house across the street is. And back in those days, when they called the fire department to work, they used a siren. And a standard fire call siren is seven ups and seven downs. There's other series for other kinds of emergencies. And so and it was an old mechanical siren on the top of the building. and You know, the whole thing, seven times up and seven times down. And I'm sleeping about that far away from it, slept right through it. And, you know, my wife didn't sleep through it, but I did until I became a firefighter. And when I was a firefighter, I began to tune my ear to that, and it got to where I could hear it at the very beginning of the wind-up from a long distance, because it was calling me. It got my attention. It got me going. What calls you to attention? What arouses your spirit? God says we ought to be aroused to activity By the fact that some people have been ensnared by the devil, taken captive to do his will. Now, I don't believe for a minute that's talking about demonic possession or demonic oppression. I believe it's talking about the possession of truth. And the fact that when people pick up Satan's ideas, or as the scripture calls them, doctrines of demons, when they pick those up and they live by them, they are ensnared by the devil. The word snare has to do with a trap that an animal walks into ignorantly and then the trap goes closed and the animal is trapped in there. And that's what happens to both non-Christians and Christians when it comes to so-called truth that is not God's truth but actually false truth. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, we see the snare of Satan. He comes along and he says, Now Eve. Did God really mean what he said? He said, you know, Eve, if you do this, you're going to become like God. You're going to know good and evil. And, and what was the snare? The snare was pride. Eve went, that's right. I'll be like God. And she went to Adam and said, Adam, you can be like God. And he went, yes, I think I'd like that. And boom, the trap went closed on. They're snared. Do you know that this says here? Look at verse 26. Come to their senses. The word actually means to stop being drunk. It means that when... when, And applied to Satan's truth, he says, when Satan's ideology comes to people and they take it in, they're like a drunk person. They can't help themselves. And he said, our job is to care about truth and people so much that we say, I'm not going to settle for that person to be ensnared by the devil. I am not going to sit by and say, well, you know, that's their problem. I'm not going to sit by and say, I, I, I hate that stupid moronic discussion they have and so I'm going to just completely walk away. John MacArthur, in commenting on this, said this, "...coming to their senses literally means to return to soberness, indicating that falsehood and sin produce what might be called a type of spiritual inebriation, a stupor resulting in the loss of judgment and proper control of one's faculties. The destructive effect of false teaching and sin numbs the conscience, confuses the mind." erodes conviction and paralyzes the will. My granddaughter Kylie is just learning to walk and so she wobbles. I have a bad knee so I wobble. We're kind of the same. And if she were up here walking and she was headed toward the stairs, I wouldn't go, oh let's see how that works. No, because we realize how weak she is And we say, oh, we've got to be careful. And we get over here and we kind of superintend and make sure she crawls down just right. That's what God says we're supposed to do toward weak believers. We're supposed to see that there's danger ahead. She could fall down. She could break her neck. Am I willing to let that happen? No. What about with Christians who have sucked into Satan's truth. Are we willing just to go? Well, yeah, I know you're going to crash and burn, but that's your problem. Say, Levine. No, mature believers, strong believers, say we've got to do something. The truly strong believer cares that people are about to fall down some stairs, and so they are driven to do something to help the weak brother or sister. When I was in high school, I wanted a varsity letter jacket. I wanted a varsity letter and the jacket to go with it because what I really wanted was to be one of the cool guys. We had a square in the middle of our campus and this elevated cement platformy thing, and all the cool guys stood out there with their letter jackets first thing in the morning. Man, I want to be one of those guys. Well, I eventually got the jacket, But I never really became an athlete because real athletes know that success is born out of real hard work. And so I was a wannabe. I was a poser. (laughs) I sneaked in the door. Every Christian can be strong and mature, but many don't want the work necessary to get there. Friends, let us do the work needed to know the word of God so that we can grow strong because the body of Christ needs us. Heavenly Father, help us. It's so easy to just get by with your truth, get by in life, and not to really be a craftsman with the word who cares for other people. Help us, Lord. Help us to get outside of ourself and to do what is needed to bring some people out of the snare of Satan. Help us to be servants. I pray in Christ's name, amen.